Good afternoon. Uh, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we know that uh, in your word we find life uh, because your words point us to your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear today. And Father, I pray that uh, you would keep me from error and that uh, you would speak through me by your spirit today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, many of the things that we have in our homes come with instruction manuals. IKEA furniture comes with instructions on how to put it together. Your appliances, like your, your oven or your microwave, are going to give you instructions about how to use them and maybe even how to repair them if something goes wrong. Now, the problem with these instruction manuals, or at least many of these instruction manuals, in my opinion, is that they do not come with pictures. So I can read about how to build a piece of furniture or I can read about how to make a repair to my microwave, but without a picture, those instructions can be difficult to understand. Uh, so maybe that's just a personal problem, but I suspect it's not. If you're anything like me, you're gonna go to YouTube and you're gonna see if you can find an example of somebody doing the same repair that you want to make uh, so you can actually understand what you're supposed to do. That's what I find myself doing all the time. Yeah, well, the point is that pictures can help us understand words. It's the reason that children's books have so many pictures in them. It's so that children can understand the words that are being read to them. Well, as we get older, our books usually do not have pictures anymore. Maybe that is a, a sad thing for many of you. Uh, but good writers and good speakers, they provide word pictures, illustrations and examples that help people understand and remember their message. It's why preachers use examples and illustrations, uh, something I'm trying to get better at myself. Uh, but the point is that those word pictures help us to remember the message. They help to drive home the message. They help us to understand the words that are being spoken. Well, this is a, a little bit of what, what, it, what is going on in our verses today. If you turn to, to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, that's what we're going to be looking at. And this is a little bit of like what is going on in this text. The, the last few weeks, we've been studying Jesus' sermon on the plain. So we studied the conclusion of that sermon last week when Jesus talked about trees and fruit and the man who built his house on a, a firm foundation well, those things themselves are illustrations or word pictures that helped us to really understand what Jesus's message was about the heart. But in our text for today, in the verses that we're gonna read for today, we find what I think are two real life illustrations of the Sermon on the Plain. So Jesus, he has an encounter with a centurion whose servant is sick and a widow whose only son had just died. And in these encounters, we see the Sermon on the Plain illustrated. Now, these events from Jesus' life really happened. These are, are true accounts. These miracles really happened. But I think at least one of the reasons that Jesus performed these miracles, and I think one of the reasons that Luke puts them where he does in his gospel, is to help us to understand the Sermon on the Plain more deeply. It is to help you understand more fully what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so with, with that in mind, I have two points for you to consider today, two points to consider from the text. Both points kind of recall the Beatitudes of Jesus that really opened up the Sermon on the Plain, if you remember from a few weeks ago. Uh, so those two points are one, becoming poor, and two, weeping to laughing. So becoming poor, weeping to laughing. 
And the main idea is that Jesus has all authority, even authority over death, and he gives life and calls you to follow by his authoritative word. And Jesus has all authority, even authority over death, and he gives life and calls you to follow by his authoritative word. Uh, So first, becoming poor. Look with me at the first five verses of Luke chapter 7. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and to save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Well, so when when Jesus finishes preaching the the Sermon on the Plain and instructing his disciples, he enters the town of Capernaum. And there's a centurion there whose whose servant is sick and near death. He hears Jesus was in town. And so he sends a group of Jewish elders, leaders in the community to Jesus to ask that Jesus would come and heal his, his servant. Uh, So a centurion, centurion is just a name or a title that was given to a Roman soldier who commanded uh, somewhere around 100 soldiers. So century, 100 years, centurion, 100 soldiers. Um, So when Luke lets us know that this man was a centurion, it tells us at least two things about this man. At first, we, we learn that it's a man with a great deal of authority. He commanded a large number of soldiers. We also learn immediately that this man was a a Gentile, and specifically, he was a Roman soldier. Uh, So Gentiles, as I'm sure you've you've heard over and over again, were generally not really well looked upon by uh, by the Jewish people. They were generally despised. But Roman soldiers in particularly were looked down on and despised. So at this time, uh, Rome was an occupying force in Israel, and therefore the Roman Empire was generally not well-liked. And those who represented that empire, whether soldiers or or governors or other officials, well, they got lumped into that same category. They were not well-respected. They were generally despised. Uh, So this centurion has a a few strikes uh, against him, at least just generally. Well, from the text... We also learn that the centurion was a wealthy man. He, he has a servant, uh, but he also seems to be a man who has a, a great deal of love and compassion, at least for this servant, right? He highly values him. He sends elders to Jesus that this uh, servant may be healed. And when these Jewish elders they come to Jesus, we learn even more about this man. If we look back at verses 4 and 5, when they reached Jesus... They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this. Uh, In other words, he is worthy for you to heal his servant because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Uh, Well, this report is is remarkable when, you know, in light of everything we just said, uh, these Jewish elders, they come and say that the centurion is is worthy to have his servant healed because he has shown such love for the nation of Israel, such love for the people of Capernaum. It seems as he, have, as he has helped build a synagogue, whether he used his influence or, or maybe donated a large amount of money to help the synagogue come together. Uh, we're not sure, but whatever it was, he did something in service of the Jewish community to help a synagogue be built there in Capernaum. 
Uh, and the common hatred or animosity between Jew and Gentile or uh, the residents of Israel in the Roman Empire does not seem to be present here. These Jewish elders willingly go to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. They commend the centurion as one who is worthy for Jesus to come and, and do this thing for him. If we were to, to think back to the, the Sermon on the Plain, I think it might be fair to say that the centurion had loved his enemies well. I don't think it's a stretch to, to imagine when this centurion first showed up in Capernaum that he would not have been treated extraordinarily well by the residents of the community. Uh, yet, uh, despite that, it seems as if this man has displayed a remarkable amount of kindness uh, to the people of that community, and they grew to respect him and to honor him. You might even say they grew to love him. I think we should just stop and, and recognize that love often wins favor. It earns loyalty and trust of your children. Love earns the affection of your spouse. A good reputation among coworkers is earned by one who, who loves their coworkers well. Love often produces peace. We read in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Well, the seems to be what happened in the life of the centurion. The, the generosity that he displayed to the community leads these Jewish elders to willingly go to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. But I think that the question that may be in your mind, it was certainly in my mind as I was reading through this text, is why? Why did the centurion send Jewish elders to Jesus instead of coming to see Jesus himself? Now, you, you may think, uh, you may think it's that he wanted these Jewish elders, countrymen of Jesus, to bring this great report uh, about him, of his actions, so that Jesus will grant his request. But I don't think that's the reason why he actually sent them. I think at least one of the reasons he did it is it was a sign of respect to Jesus, a, a recognition of Jesus's own authority. We're going to see this in a minute as we continue reading in these verses. And it was an acknowledgement, it was an acknowledgement of the centurion's own unworthiness before Jesus. So as a, a representative of the Roman Empire, I think it's likely that the centurion could have issued a command, or at least something close to a command for Jesus to, to come to him. But he does not do that. He instead sends others to ask and plead on his behalf. He, he sends respected Jewish elders to Jesus to plead on his behalf. And in doing so, I, th I think this man shows a great deal of respect to Jesus. And so that's one of the reasons. But as the, as the narrative continues, I think the main reason that the centurion did not come himself is that he saw himself as unworthy before Jesus. So look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus went with them. So Jesus went with these Jewish elders. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, 
and to my servant, do this, and he does it. If you will, just uh, look for a moment one chapter back in Luke's gospel to Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, the beginning of the Beatitudes, this is what Jesus says at the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. If you remember back a, a few weeks ago as we were studying this particular text, I said that when Jesus says blessed is the poor, he's really speaking to those who are humble. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who humble themselves before God. He is speaking to those who see themselves as morally bankrupt before God and unworthy of God's favor. Now, friends, this is a description of the centurion. He is a, a real-life example or a, a real-life illustration of what it looks like to make oneself poor or to make oneself humble before Jesus. In verse 6 of our text, the centurion sends other friends to Jesus as Jesus is on the way to his house and tells Jesus, please don't come all the way to my house. Don't come all the way to my house because I am unworthy to have you come in. Again, in verse 7, he has his friends tell Jesus that the reason he did not come see Jesus in the first place, but he sent others on his behalf, was that he saw himself as unworthy to come to Jesus. Well, if you've been paying attention, you'll, you'll recognize that these statements stand in stark contrast. Uh, they are the exact opposite of what these Jewish elders had said about the centurion. In verse 4, they tell Jesus, well, this centurion is worthy that you would grant this request. But two times in verses 6 and 7, the centurion says, no, I am not worthy. Now, I, I think what we're seeing here is the, the contrast that Luke has made throughout his gospel. Uh, the religious leaders, the, the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Jewish elders here, they saw righteousness as something that you earned. They believed that you could earn your salvation and God's approval by what you did. So we've seen previously in Luke's gospel, uh, they might think that how often they avoided associating with sinners or how many times they fasted, how strict they were in observing the, the Sabbath was the measure of their righteousness and their standing before God. So they see the centurion's good works here, his helping to build a synagogue for the people of Capernaum. Uh, they see this as deserving of Jesus's blessing. But as we've seen a number of times, Jesus taught something different. He taught true righteousness is not something that you earn. Salvation is not something that you earn. God's favor is not something that you earn. Faith is not something that you find or you produce on your own. These things are all free and unmerited gifts of God's grace. I think Luke has kind of brought us back to this same truth and taught this same thing over and over and over again because we are so tempted to trust in our good works. Now, we might not admit it, but we think God owes us for the good that we have done. Hey God, don't you remember how I helped that person yesterday? Weren't you paying attention? Uh, are you going to help me now, right? 
Oh, Lord, I've been pretty faithful lately. I don't know if you've been watching, but I've been doing pretty good down here. I've been fairly obedient. I've been going to church a lot. Uh, I've even talked about you a couple of times to other people. Are you going to reward me? Like, when's my life going to turn around? Haven't you been paying attention? We're really quick to take the attitude of, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, or I am worthy, I am worthy, I am worthy. But brothers and sisters, the truth is that any good that we have in our life is an undeserved gift of God's grace. Uh, Therefore, as as we've said a number of times through our journey through Luke, a, a right response to God is not to boast in your works building a synagogue for a a city, but to humble yourselves, acknowledge your unworthiness, and to plead for God's mercy. This is exactly what the centurion did. He made himself poor. He humbled himself. He acknowledged that he was unworthy of God's favor. And friends, that is what a proper response to Jesus looks like. Uh, But brothers and sisters, the the other thing I want you to see from the centurion here is that the centurion saw himself as unworthy because, because he had a right understanding of who Jesus is. He recognized that Jesus had a power and authority simply to speak and make his servant well. Like he, Jesus did not need to show up at his house. Jesus is not a doctor who needs to be physically present with his patient to treat his patients. I know Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He is the one that spoke all things into existence and upholds the universe by the word of his power. He simply needs to speak to make it happen. The centurion recognized the authority of Jesus. Just take a moment and think of your own boss at your place of work. He is able to give commands and instructions. And if you and your coworkers want to keep your jobs, you are probably going to obey the commands that your boss gives. Uh, But now imagine for a second that you're at your place of work, your boss is there, and His Highness Sheikh Hamid, ruler of Fujairah, walked in. What would happen? Uh, I think your your boss or any other authority figure in the room would certainly t- su- suddenly take on a different attitude. They would come become deferential in the presence of Sheikh Hamid. They would recognize that they were in the presence of one with a much greater authority than their own. Now, this is exactly what happens with the centurion. The centurion recognized that Jesus had a greater authority than his own. The centurion himself had a great deal of authority, right? He says in in verse 8 that he is a man placed under authority. In other words, the centurion spoke with the authority of the Roman Empire. He spoke with the emperor's authority. He had been granted authority by the Roman Empire and spoke on behalf of that empire as he issued commands. He could say to a soldier, go or come or do this. And that soldier or that servant would obey. Well, in a similar way, Jesus spoke with the authority of God. Now, Jesus is God, but, but in his time on earth, Jesus came to do the will of his Father, and therefore he spoke with the authority of God. 
a much, much, much greater authority than the authority with which the centurion spoke. And the centurion recognized this. Jesus could simply speak a word and sickness would be healed. The centurion had a remarkable understanding of who Jesus was. And so he did not seek to stand on his own authority as he approached Jesus. He did not order Jesus to come. He asked. He did not tell Jesus of all the good he had done, but instead he confessed his own unworthiness. The centurion made himself poor or humble. When it came to Jesus, the centurion was no longer a powerful or influential figure in the Roman Empire or in the city of Capernaum. He was a poor and needy sinner in need of God's grace. Uh, understanding who Jesus was made all the difference for the centurion. Uh, well, in his book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Friends, this was certainly true for the centurion, and it is true for you as well. If you do not see God as holy, you will not see your own sin. If you do not understand God's justice, you will never see your need to repent. If you do not see or you do not believe that God has all authority, you will never submit to him and you will never obey. If you do not believe that God is both in control of all things and good, you will never trust him during times of trial. If you do not see God as glorious and majestic, you do not see God as high and lifted up, you will not worship. If you do not understand God's love, you will not love. If you do not see God as compassionate, you will not rest in him and take your burdens to him. And what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The centurion had the right understanding of who Jesus was, and that led him to a right response to Jesus. Well, finally, that brings us to Jesus' response then to the centurion. Uh, look with me at, at verses 9 and 10. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Well, Jesus turns to the crowd and in response to everything that the centurion has said to him through intermediaries at this point, Jesus says, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. Oh, so the centurion's faith has been demonstrated because he has seen Jesus for who he is. He has made himself poor uh, before Jesus. He has shown that he believes Jesus could heal from even a distance. The centurion has demonstrated a great faith in Jesus. And so Jesus turns to the crowd. He, he makes this statement. And I think he turns to the crowd and makes this statement because he is teaching the crowds. He's teaching the crowds that this centurion is a living example of Jesus' teaching. He is a living example of what it means to become poor. He's a living example of, of the, the last few verses that we see in the Sermon on the Plain. Look at Luke 6, 47 and 48. 
I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words and acts on them. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When the flood came, the river crashed against that house and couldn't shake it because it was well built. Now, those verses describe the centurion. To build your life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and his words is to hear Jesus' words and respond to them in faith and obedience. We read back in verse 3, it's when the centurion hears about Jesus that he sends Jewish elders to Jesus. What does he do in response to hearing about Jesus? He remakes himself poor and he responds with faith. And this is made even more remarkable by the fact that the centurion was a Gentile. So these Jewish elders, the, the Pharisees and other religious leaders that we have seen throughout Luke, I mean, they knew the words of God. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament, God's revelation of himself there. But for the most part, they did not understand and they did not obey the words of God. They did not follow Jesus. They did not believe in Jesus. But on the other hand, the centurion did. He had faith. And so Jesus, in his response to the centurion and the centurion's response to Jesus, we see a clear picture that the gospel is for all people. It is for those who hear and respond to his words in repentance and faith. Those are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, friends, if, if you are here and, and not a Christian, the, the application of Jesus' encounter with the centurion is clear. Uh, see Jesus for who he is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator of all things. He is the one with all power and authority. See Jesus for who he is and respond in faith. Make yourself poor. Make yourself humble. Come to the Lord and confess your sin. Submit to his authority. Follow him. And, and brothers and sisters, for those of you who are here and, and you are Christians, Oh, the centurion is a living illustration of Jesus' sermon on the plain and a living example of how you are to respond to Jesus. He loved his enemies. He made himself poor. He built his house on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and his words. And that takes us to the, the second point of the sermon. So the first, becoming poor. The second, weeping to laughing weeping to laughing. Look at me at verses 11 through 13. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. So Jesus heads to another town called Nain, which is several kilometers away from uh, Capernaum. And as he arrives, he encounters a funeral procession coming out of the town, a funeral procession in which the dead son of a widow is being carried out to be buried. Uh, there is a large crowd that is part of this funeral procession as well. Uh, and it's important that Luke tells us that uh, this, this man, this dead man, is uh, the only son of this widow. Uh, well, in, in that society, uh, this widow would have no longer had any sort of uh, protection or provision. 
It would have been her husband's responsibility to provide for her. When he died, it would have been her son's responsibility. So the fact that this man was her only son means that she was left with no one to care for her. So, I mean, this woman is, is certainly grieved to lose her son as any of us who are parents would be grieved to lose our son. But she is now also facing the prospect of being left with, with nothing. No protection, no provision, no ability or, or resources to take care of herself. Uh, she would have been in a difficult situation. And in fact, she would have been reliant on the compassion of others. She would have been reliant on the compassion of others to care for her. And so this, I think, helps you to understand Jesus's response to her. Jesus had compassion. This widow would have been reliant on the compassion of others. And who is it that shows her compassion? It is Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it's one word. Jesus had compassion for this woman, but it's a word I don't think that we should skip past. It is an amazing statement that the God of the universe, the one who had just finished speaking a word and healing a servant from afar, the one who has all authority, an authority far superior to the authority that the centurion possessed, well, this same person had compassion for the lowly widow. The same person had compassion for the lowly widow. He cared deeply about her suffering. He cared deeply about her distress. And brothers and sisters, I think you should just take time to marvel that you have a God who cares for you. You have a God who is merciful and compassionate. Because of God's mercy and compassion, the author of Hebrews writes this. Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy or compassion and find grace to help us in time of need. And brothers and sisters, in your own times of difficulty, in your own times of, of suffering, in your own times of trial, you can come confidently to God in prayer, knowing that Jesus who intercedes for you with the Father will have compassion on you. You serve a compassionate God. You have a compassionate Savior. Brothers and sisters, you do not pray or serve a distant God, but a living and an active God, a God who intimately cares for you, a God who has compassion. I mean, take time to rejoice in that fact that you serve a God who cares for you individually. And because God has been compassionate to you, he calls you to show compassion to others. I mean, remember the, the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus told his disciples to love even their enemies because, because God had been merciful and compassionate to them. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God comforts us so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, God has comforted you so that you might comfort others. 
so that you might be the means through which God sends his comfort to others. Have you ever considered the fact that God has allowed times of testing and times of trial and times of difficulty into your life that you may be able to turn around and comfort others in the future? Have you ever considered the fact that you have received God's compassion that you might show it to others and point them to Christ? Oh, that is what Paul is saying there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You serve a God who has been compassionate to you. Praise be to God. Now turn around and be compassionate to others. And notice here that, that Jesus' compassion is not just an internal emotion that he keeps to himself. He comes and he shows compassion by speaking to the widow. He shows compassion by acting on her behalf. And brothers and sisters, true compassion takes action. And true compassion is not just feeling sorry for someone. Like, ah, oh, that's really difficult. That's not a bad thing to feel, but true compassion does more. And true compassion asks, what can I do to help? True compassion is taking soup to a friend who is sick without being asked. Uh, true, in true compassion, we don't just look at our own circumstances and what we need and what is convenient for us, but we consider and we put the needs of others before our own. And we act, we speak, we love because God has shown compassion to us. And so in his compassion, Jesus comes to this widow and he tells her not to weep. Uh, this statement brings us to the title of this second point of the sermon and this final real life illustration of the Sermon on the Plain. I look back at Luke 6.21. Look back at Luke 6.21. Bless the second half of the verse. Blessed are you who weep now because you will laugh. And we see this statement lived out in this encounter between Jesus and the widow. She is weeping over the death of her son. Jesus comes up and tells her not to weep, and then he acts. Uh, look with me at verses 14 through 17. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Uh, so Jesus comes up to this funeral procession. He, he approaches the widow, tells her not to weep, and then he comes up to the coffin, looks at her son, and tells him to get up. Uh, the young man immediately gets up, and then Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Now, Luke does not record the widow's reaction here, but it doesn't take much imagination to picture her tears of sorrow turning into tears of joy, to picture her weeping turning into laughing. Jesus gave life to her son. Jesus gave her son back to her. Over and over again throughout Luke's gospel, he has pointed to Jesus's great power and authority. But in these verses, he reveals even a new aspect of, these, of this authority. That Jesus has a power and authority even over death. Jesus had healed before. He has cast out demons a number of times. He has even forgiven sin. But this is the first time we see Jesus show that he has power even over death. And notice what it is that gives life to this widow's son. It is the words of Jesus that give life. 
know, after reading the story of the centurion, after we, we spent several minutes walking through the story of the centurion, you might be tempted to think that it is your faith that brings life. But notice in these verses that there is no mention of the widow's faith. And Jesus' raising of her son is simply a gracious act of his compassion. What produced life was not her faith. It certainly was not the faith of that son who was lying there dead in the coffin, but it was Jesus' words. He spoke and he released her son from his bondage to death. Now, we need faith, brothers and sisters. We certainly do, but faith is a gift of God. The faith that the centurion exercised was a gift of God. And friends, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard is the message about Christ. The universe was created by the word of God. By the word of his power, Jesus upholds the universe. With the same breath that he speaks, he breathed life into Adam. In Ezekiel 37, what gives life to the dry bones that are sitting there wasting away in the desert is God's word. And brothers and sisters, it is God's word that brings life. This is the, the main reason we simply try to th preach through books of the Bible here at Emmanuel. It's the reason why we read the Bible in our services. It's the reason that we encourage you to read your Bible when you go from here in your daily life. It is because it's God's word that brings life. Now, it's not some in, in some mystical way. It's not as if there's some secret formula that we must unlock, that if we say these specific words of God in this certain way, that we're going to unlock some magical power. No, God's word brings life because God, as God's word is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit reveals God. The Holy Spirit reveals who you are as one unworthy, as a sinner before a holy and majestic God. And the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ that you might love him and trust him. The power to save and the power to change is not in me. That power is not in you. And that power is not in anyone else. It is in the word of God. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says that he has all authority. And because of that authority that we, his church, are to go and make disciples of all nations. We do not go and make disciples through our own power and our own wisdom and our own might, but we go in the authority and under the authority of the one who has all power and authority. Like that centurion was a man under authority, so we are ones as Christians who are under authority, and we go in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, that should give us great confidence. It should make us lovers of God's word, those reliant on God's word, those who trust in God's word, who proclaim God's word. It is the word of God that brings life. Jesus' words to this dead man revealed he is the one who has power over death. It revealed he has all authority and that life comes through his word. Well, unfortunately, not everyone who was there and witnessed this miracle fully understand, understood this truth. Look at verse 16. In response to Jesus raising this man back to life, it says, Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Well, the crowds respond with fear and praise God. I mean, that sounds good. That is good. They should praise God but their praise seems to be limited to the fact that Jesus was just a great prophet. 
Uh, now remember back to those verses from 1 Kings 17 that Angela read about Elijah raising a widow's son to life. No doubt that story was on the minds of, of many who were there and witnessed this event uh, that day. Here is another man who was raised to life. It must be another prophet. Perhaps it was that promised prophet who would come in the power of Elijah. Uh, well, to call Jesus a prophet is true on one hand. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. But it is an incomplete statement on the other. Jesus is more than a prophet. Our Muslim friends would agree that Jesus is a prophet. But he is more. He is God in the flesh. And to go back to that story of Elijah, as I said in the introduction to that scripture reading, Elijah had to pray to God for that boy to be raised. He stretched himself out over the boy three times and he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come into him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah. That, that story from 1 Kings makes it clear that that boy was raised by the power of God. What these crowds missed who witnessed Jesus raising this widow's son back to life is that it was Jesus himself by his word who raised the widow's son to life. Because he is God, he is Savior, he is Messiah, he is Lord, and he is the one with all power and authority. And we'll get to this text in a few weeks, but in, in Luke 9, verses 18 through 20, uh, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says this. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. That is the proper response to who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is Christ the Lord. And because Jesus is God and he could and he did conquer death by his sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead three days later, he turned our weeping into laughing by enduring death on our behalf. He gave himself as a sacrifice for sin to pay the penalty for sin for all who would make themselves poor and all who would place their faith in him. But he did not stay dead. Jesus rose again because he has power over sin and death. That is the hope of our eternal life, that Jesus is not dead, but he is living. Jesus died to free his people. Jesus died and was raised again to free his people from their bondage to sin and give them eternal life. And brothers and sisters, we serve a living and a reigning Savior. The, the reason that the, the sorrow and weeping of believers in this life will turn into to joy and into laughter in the life to come is because Christians are those who have received and believed Jesus' words of life. Jesus says this in John 5, 25. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And brothers and sisters, Christians are those who are dead, who have heard the words of life. And friends, if you are here and not a Christian, we call you to place your faith in the only one who has conquered death, Jesus Christ. We call you to hear his words today and live. I pray that God will give you ears to hear his word, that he will give you the gift of faith and repentance. And for those of you who are here and are Christians, be encouraged be encouraged today by Jesus' kindness and his compassion to you that he has given you ears to hear. 
that he has transformed you from the domain of darkness, that he has given life to your dead soul. He has given you ears to hear and he has given you faith. Your weeping will one day be turned to laughing because the sting of death is no more. Jesus has freed you from your bondage to sin. You have been given life by his word through his spirit and you have been brought from death to life by your mighty savior. Let's pray.